Let's try this again. Everybody else doing, everybody else in the room doing good? Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about where we're going. We're not really going to walk through 38 verses. We're going to scan through like the first 17 and then we're going to spend a lot of time on the last part because the last part literally is like one of the, one of my, one of my favorite passages, if not my favorite passage in all of, in all of scripture. Um, this, this passage means a whole lot to me. All right. For a lot of different reasons. Um, but this is one of my favorite passages. So I'm so excited to be able to talk and walk through this uh, with y'all. Uh, but one of the things that blessed me a couple of weeks ago was the time that you that you all as a church spent um, just encouraging me and my family and Corey and his family saying thank you um, and during the pastor's appreciation month and obviously during the pastor's appreciation uh, celebration in which you guys uh, organized. It was a blessing to me because sometimes I don't think we realize how much we need to be encouraged. Sometimes, sometimes we, we live life um, just kind of moving through life and just moving from one effort to the next and, 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 and one task to the next and one, and one job to the next. Um, and we don't realize that those tasks and jobs and, and, and dealing with brokenness and dealing with broken relationships and dealing with broken, broken people and dealing with our own brokenness and all of that kind of stuff can take a toll on us. And, 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 and sometimes we don't really realize it until somebody speaks an encouraging word to say, man, I appreciate you. And then when we hear that encouraging word, we realize, oh, I didn't realize I needed that, but I feel so much better now that you've given it to me. Well, one of the things that you notice about Paul in Acts chapter 20 is, and, and all throughout, all throughout scripture is Paul is committed to the act of encouragement. And so as Paul is preparing, make, or making his way back to Jerusalem, and this is his final journey, everywhere he is going for the last time, he's making sure that he is stopping to offer encouragement. Because he realizes whether or not they realize it or not, they need it. And so he's there to share a word of encouragement with every single church that he crosses along the way back to Jerusalem. When you look at, for example, verse 1 through 6, it's after the uproar in chapter 19. And, and, Corey, and, and Corey marched you guys through that last week. But Paul sends for the uh, he sent for the disciples... And then what does it say? He encouraged them. He sent for the disciples. He encouraged them and said farewell and departed to Macedonia. Now, as he's moving through Macedonia, when he had gone through these regions, he had given them much encouragement. So he's going from region to region, encouraging the saints. When we look in earlier chapters in Acts, we hear Paul going from place to place, strengthening the saints. In fact, he, 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 he is moving towards Jerusalem, but the question is, why is he moving towards Jerusalem? Well, he's moving towards Jerusalem because Jerusalem is in a, is in a season of poverty, if you will, in the church. And so he's collecting offerings as he goes from the Gentile churches so that he can do what when he gets to Jerusalem? Encourage the church at Jerusalem with a love offering to say, hey, we love you. We're thinking, we're thinking about you. 
We're here, we're here if you need us. Does that make sense? In fact, he has these gentlemen that, that, are, that are teamed up with him from all these different places and all these different churches. He has the Berean with him. He has a, he has, um, um, a group from Thessalon, uh, Thess- a, a group of the Thessalonian church f- uh, with him. He has a brother from Derby with him. He has Asians with him. All of these people have brought their offering alongside and they also are there, theologians believe, historians believe, probably because they need a little muscle, right? When you start collecting all this money, you need a little protection with you, right? Make sure, make sure you don't get jacked along the way or jacked on the ship. And so, and so he has brought brothers in fellowship, brothers that are guarding him and protecting him. And they are all together going to Jerusalem to encourage the saints in Jerusalem. But everywhere they go along the way, they're encouraging people. Even in between this, even in between this journey, these six verses, don't miss it because in these six verses are written several epistles. Romans is written in between these six verses. Second Corinthians is written in between these six verses. And so even as he is going to churches to encourage, he's writing to other churches to do what? Encourage and strengthen them in the faith. By the time you get to verse 7, it says on the first day, I'm sorry, verse 6, it says, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. It says on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, so there was plenty of light, no excuses, no excuses to fall asleep. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. In other words, they were a lot comforted. Now, as I read this, I thought about calling Corey this week and telling him that what we were going to do from here on out is just sit everybody in the windowsills. <laughs> just see if we could keep people awake. Corey, Corey wouldn't go for it, though. So we just have to let you guys sit in these cushy pews. But imagine how sleepy you have to be to sit in the windowsill the on the third story and still fall asleep. This young man obviously was not all that enamored by Paul. I'm sure there were a lot of other people who were excited to have the Apostle Paul together with them to talk and speak with them. This young man was not one of them. And the Apostle Paul spoke endlessly. Look, look, look at what it says. It says that he prolonged his speech until midnight, but he just kept talking all the way until daybreak. Paul, in fact, Paul stopped talking, went down to the first story, 
by God's grace and power, raised this kid back to life, went back up to the third story and continued to talk until daybreak. And some of us, you know, we get an hour of this and we're like, man, we're going to get these tacos, right? Tacos and talk starts at 1230, Crawford, come on. What, what's happening here? This is, this is not just a, a gentleman who is preaching a sermon. This is a brother who is caring for his family before he departs. It's his last stop, or, or it's his last time that they may see him. And so he's just talking all the way until the early morning, talking, sharing about the glory of Christ, sharing about the beauty of Christ, but in so doing, encouraging them. Does that make sense? And so there's this encouraging journey that Paul is on. There's this encouraging miracle because obviously the Bible says that they were not a little comforted. In other words, they were greatly comforted by what God did in their midst in raising this young man back to life and restoring his life. And so there's this encouraging miracle. But then as Paul is making his journey all the way throughout to say his goodbyes, there's these final encouraging words. And this is really where I want to spend all of our time this morning. Because in these encouraging words, there is a lesson for us. There's a lesson for us about encouraging uh, encouragement. There's a lesson for us about goodbyes. There's a lesson for us about leadership. See, Paul is well on his way back to Jerusalem, as we've mentioned. He has this encouraging offering that he's about to take to the Jerusalem people. And he's collected this encouraging offering from all places, from Gentile churches. People that at one point in time, the Jerusalem folks would have said, they're not even allowed to be a part of the church. And here they are, a part of this encouragement in the midst of famine and poverty. But he also, in heading back to Jerusalem, is fully convinced he's not coming back. The Spirit has led him in such a way where he knows this is my last time seeing you. And so this is what Paul does. He has a particular church in mind, a church that he spent three years with, the church at Ephesus. But he doesn't have time to actually stop in the city of Ephesus. Now, there's reasons why. There could be some opposition because we know that he saw opposition in Ephesus. We've walked through that. We've seen that. There could be just so much ministry demand in these that people are pulling on him too much. And so... We don't know why he decides, but we know he decides, okay, I can't go, so I have to keep going. So he keeps going to Miletus, but he stops and says, tell the brothers from Ephesus to come see me. There's love here at work that he, he loves these brothers so much that even though he can't stop in their city, he still doesn't want to go too far without seeing them. And so he beckons for them. Now, Paul has spent a number of years in, in, in Asia with this church, training them, discipling them, and, and mentoring them. And from that discipling and training, he's developed a group of elders, a group of pastors, a group of leaders in this church. And those are the people that he calls to himself. 
However, however, what's different about this particular instance of encouragement is versus the other instance, instances that we read is that we are given a full glimpse behind the curtain. We get a chance to see everything that Paul wants to say as he is encouraging them on his final tour. There's a final, there's a final encouragement to remember. A final encouragement to remember. There's also a final encouragement to watch. There's also a final encouragement to pour yourself out. And then there's the goodbye. And so I want to look at each one of those, a final encouragement to remember. Paul begins his goodbye by way of reminder and pointing back to his own examples that he lived out in front of the Ephesian pastors. His purpose in declaring this, though, is not to make a boast of himself, but his purpose in declaring this is to remind them of what it looks like to actually be leading. Remind them what it actually looks like to shepherd. So what does Paul, what, what, what is, what is Paul's words to them, um, in, in, in this text? His words are in verse 18. It says, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. I lived among you. You know how I live. You watched me live. And I lived this way from the very moment I set foot here. It's the same way, same consistent manner. Now, we see in, in 1 Thessalonians that Paul oftentimes reminds us of, of, of how he lived and points to his example with purpose. Look at 1 Thessalonians, or it should be on the screen for you. For, when, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us uh, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. So in other words, my example was for you. The example that I lived was for your strengthening, was for your encouragement, was for your growth. And the same thing is happening here in Ephesus when Paul goes back to his memory and he says, remember how I lived among you. Why is he telling us that? He's telling us that because he wants us to be strengthened and encouraged by looking at his example and by thinking about his example. Paul says, I lived among you. The whole time from the first day, and he continues in verse 19 of chapter 20, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul lived at, he lived out an example of service to the Lord. He lived out an example of service to the Lord. How was that service? That service was a humble service. A service was a compassionate service and a passionate service, one done with tears. That service was a hard service with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Folks, in your service to the Lord, understand that we must be humble when we serve. But not only must we be humble when we serve, but we must be compassionate when we serve. And not only must we be compassionate when we serve, but we must realize that trials will come 
when we serve. You know, sometimes we want to serve in pride and arrogance. We want to serve because we feel like we're God's gift to whomever it is that we're serving. Paul doesn't feel that way. Paul says, I served. When I served, I served the Lord with humility. Sometimes we want to serve to make a boast of ourselves, not really even having any compassion or concern or care for the people that we're serving. Paul doesn't serve that way. He says that I served with tears. Why were the tears? The tears were for you. The tears were because I cared. Sometimes we want to serve and we, won't, and we don't want any hardship when we serve. We want to serve in convenience. We want, the, we want everything to be rosy when we do what we do, right? And so when we talk about service, a lot of times we're literally talking about the perfect windows in time in which we can serve. And if we don't have a perfect window to serve, then we say, well, I can't serve. Hey, man, can you do this for us on this day? Well, you know, I'm a little tired. Okay, can you do this for us on this day? You know what I mean? I mean, it's serving, Paul serves through trials. He doesn't serve through convenience. He serves the Lord through trials. Not only is Paul serving the Lord, but Paul is also sharing the Lord. In verse 20 and 21, it says, how did I, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so Paul encourages through his life by serving the Lord. But Paul also encourages with his life by sharing the Lord. Telling people about Jesus. He says, I did not shrink back from you or from declaring to you what was profitable. Why would Paul shrink back? The only only reason he would shrink back is because they didn't necessarily want to hear it. Sometimes we don't want to hear what is profitable for us. Sometimes we don't want to hear what will benefit us. But Paul says, I'm more concerned about your soul. And so I will share even when it's not what you want to hear because it's what you need to hear. He shares what is profitable with them. He teaches them in public and he teaches them in private from house to house. He testifies to the Jews and to the Greeks about what? Repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he is unapologetic about sharing the full gospel with them. In fact, he says that it was the full gospel, the whole counsel of God that I shared with you in verse 27. And so Paul is not only share, not only living his life by serving the Lord, he is living his life by sharing the Lord. And then lastly, he is living his life by sacrificing for the Lord. In verse 22 and 24, it says, 22 through 24, it says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, you know, the spirit has told me something about this life ahead. You know, most of the time when we feel like we heard something from the spirit, it's something good. The spirit has told me to tell you to give me $100, right? But very rarely, have, very rarely do we hear the spirit speak to us as it has spoken to Paul. Constrained by the spirit, I don't know what's going to happen to me there, but I do know this. The spirit has testified and told me this. That in every city there's imprisonment and afflictions. Paul is still going, though. Why? Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, you know, as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of his gospel. It says, my life isn't more important than the ministry that he's given me, which is to make his name known. My life isn't more important than the ministry that he has given me to encourage the saints along the way. And so for that reason, I go. Even through inconvenience, I push. Even through sickness, I push. Even through hurt, I push. See, see part, of, part of this is that we have to understand when it, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to the Christian life, what we have to, part of the thing that we have to come to grips with is that this really isn't about you. Part, part, of, part of our, the biggest obstacle in front of us when it comes to serving the Lord, sacrificing for the Lord, sharing the Lord, is that we've made all of this about us. And so when it's not convenient for us, we say, okay, well, the Lord must not want me to do that. Because it, it doesn't, fit, doesn't fit my calendar, doesn't fit my schedule, doesn't fit my wallet, doesn't fit my, you know, my pain tolerance, doesn't fit my comfort tolerance. And so the Lord must, don't want me to do this. I'm just going to, you know, kick the game back on. But as you can, as, if you read what Paul is saying here, Paul is very clear. I've made a decision that this life is not about me. That's about him. And so because of that, even though I see that there is hardship that awaits me by going, God has called me to go. And so I'm going. Family of God, how is your gospel example impacting your ability to provide gospel encouragement? See, because encouragement, you can give encouragement. It was actually one of the earlier points. Sorry, Darren. I'm sure you wanted to show that earlier, but, but you can give encouragement, but gospel encouragement is way more powerful and way more impactful when it is coming from gospel example. You know, you can encourage, you can encourage somebody to hold on, hold on, man, keep fighting, you know, keep, hold on to Jesus. But if I look at your life and see no evidence of you holding on to Jesus, then I'm like, man, get out of here. I don't want to hear that. Gospel example 
bolsters gospel encouragement. The reason why these brothers and these sisters, as Paul moves from one place to the next, are locked in and willing to listen to him all throughout the morning or through the night into the morning is because he has laid an example and groundwork for them to hold on to and to take encouragement in. Does your life encourage others to serve the Lord with humility and with conviction and with compassion through the trials of life? Does your life encourage others to share the Lord and his gospel with boldness? Does your life encourage others to sacrifice for the Lord? To move past the discomforts for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of his gospel? Paul's testimony here is that if you look at my life, you will not see perfection. But if you look at my life, you will see a life surrendered to Christ in such a way that it encourages you in some way to continue to do the same. Paul offers a final encouragement not only to remember, but he offers a final encouragement to watch. Beginning in verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In these, in these words of encouragement to watch, Paul is giving us a what to do, a why to do it, and a how to do it. The what to do is to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. The command starts first with holiness. Pay careful attention to you. And then pay careful attention to the people that you're leading. See, pastors and leaders can't shy away from, from care, um, from leading the people of God to pursue holiness and righteousness. But before they're leading the people of God to pursue righteousness and holiness, they must lead themselves to pursue righteousness and holiness. We can't, we can't. Teach people to pursue something we aren't pursuing. They can't call people to holiness if they aren't pursuing it themselves. If we lose our commitment to walk in holiness, we lose our ability to lead people towards holiness. 1800 Scottish minister once wrote that my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. The people that I lead and shepherd, their greatest need is my personal holiness. What they can't see is somebody that's telling them to follow Jesus, and they ain't following Jesus. But he goes farther than that. He reminds the elders who appointed appointed them, the elders that appointed them, who are they? I mean, who is it? He says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. A leader's ability to guard the flock is not determined by the committee that hires them or the leaders that appoint them. It is determined by the Spirit of God who makes and appoints overseers and equips overseers, pastors, shepherds, leaders to care for the church. Yeah, there's a lot of people involved in bringing somebody on, but ultimately, if God is not involved, they can't do it. He says, God has made you overseers. But lastly, then he reminds the uh, the elders whose church it actually is. He says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So why do you watch? 
You watch because it's Christ's church. You watch because Christ paid for this church with his very own blood. See, some pastors and leaders and officials, they grow too comfortable with ministry and they, they, they take this ideal of ownership into ministry when they are entrusted to things in the local church, when they are entrusted to committees, when they are entrusted to uh, uh, mission efforts. They believe it belongs to them. The team belongs to them. The vision belongs to them. The mission belongs to them. The resources that have been entrusted to them belongs to them. But we must pay careful attention to ourselves in this way. We must never lose sight of whose church it really is. This church is God's church and everything in it is God's church. He bought it with blood. And we would do well to pay attention to that. So why does Paul give this command? There's a how to this command, but why does he give this command? In Acts chapter 20, verse 29 through 30, it says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Watch yourselves, watch your flock. Why? Because those that will seek to fill this void that I'm leaving behind are coming. And they're bringing all sorts of twisted and vile and evil teachings and doctrine with them. Many of these people will be among you, Paul says. In other words, this isn't some, you know, weird old charlatan that just comes out of nowhere and everybody's like, oh, yeah, we can spot that false prophet. He's like, no, these are people that know your language that know your culture, that know your practice, that know your methodology. They know how you operate. And they're just going to sow a little bit of false ideas and teachings and thoughts about God into what they're doing. Little leaven, leavens the whole lump. These people will not only come from you, but they will speak in twisted ways, but not unattractive ways. I need you to get that. They will speak in twisted ways that draw you, Paul says, draws disciples from the faith. What does it mean to draw? It means to entice. It means what they're hearing is, in fact, attractive. What makes a false gospel so attractive? For example, what makes prosperity gospel so attractive? A gospel that tells us that there is no such thing as a poor Christian, that there is no such thing as a sick Christian, that there is no such thing as a Christian who has trials and experiences trials and hardship, even though the Bible tells us that through many trials and tribulations, we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. What makes that prosperity gospel so attractive? Well, it appeals to what's already tempting me, which is ease and comfort and wealth. And so when I hear it, I'm drawn to it. What makes a nationalistic gospel so attractive? A a gospel that makes my race or my nation the center of attention. A, A gospel that allows me to say without shame that I'm not comfortable with certain people in my country or even in my church. When Jesus tells us that he died for all the nations and that all the nations will gather around the throne crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
What makes that gospel so attractive? It appeals to what's already tempting me. My feelings of superiority over others. And my fear of those whom I don't know. What makes the cheap grace gospel so attractive? A gospel that tells me that sin is not a big deal, that Jesus paid for my sin, so go ahead and sin with reckless abandon. That pursuing holiness is just practicing legalism. And it don't take all of that. A gospel that ignores God's command in Scripture that proclaims, shall we sin and seek to sin in order to make God's grace larger in our lives? And the answer is, God forbid, absolutely not. What makes that gospel so attractive? It appeals to what's already tempting me. And see, each one of these gospels, we must understand that there will be people who will promote them in attractive ways, ways that are familiar to you. They won't meet at the first false gospel church of Vicksburg. They will meet at whatever, whatever, whatever Baptist church, whatever, whatever Methodist church, whatever, whatever so-and-so church. They will look and sound like the real thing. So Paul says, watch. What Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to the flock. Watch. Because there are wolves coming. Watch so that we might train our people and so that we might encourage one another that the true gospel tells us that in this world we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Watch and train and encourage one another that the true gospel tells us that we are to welcome the stranger because God's people were once strangers in Egypt and even now we are called citizens in heaven, that this is really not even our home, so we're strangers here. Watch, train, and encourage because the true gospel tells us that be ye holy for I am holy and without holiness no one will see the Lord. Paul tells us to watch because these people are coming and they're coming from within and they're coming fiercely with attractive doctrines to draw us away. But lastly, he tells us the how in his encouragement. He says, verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. He says, be alert. How does he encourage us to be alert? Again, by pointing back to his own example. He says, remember, I was with you three years. And the whole time I was there, I was encouraging and admonishing you. Day and night with tears. What is his point? His point is that it is an ongoing, never-ending effort to continue to encourage and admonish the saints to keep going. Was anyone exempt from this kind of admonishment? Were there super Christians who... who who they didn't need to hear that because they've been saved since so-and-so when they were little kids at Sunday school? Paul says, no. He says, I encouraged or admonished everyone day and night without ceasing. What kind of intensity did Paul encourage them with? He says, I encouraged everyone with tears. 
Here's what he is telling the elders. We have to watch our lives. We have to watch the lives of the saints. And because of our sinfulness and our tendency to stray, we have to do it relentlessly and passionately. See, sometimes we think we've gotten enough encouragement. Sometimes we think we've gotten enough admonishment. Sometimes we sit in service and we say, well, I've already heard that passage preached before. Like we didn't need to hear it again. Have you looked at your life lately? Have you watched your last week? We need to hear this over and over and over and over again. I need to hear this over and over and over again. I need you encouraging me day and night. I need to be encouraging you day and night to say, keep running the race. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Paul says, be alert, but then he says in verse 32, lean on the Lord. Lean on the Lord's word. He says, I commend you to God and to the grace, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. In other words, Paul says, I stayed for three years, but I got to go. But I can leave. Why? Because it's the Lord who ultimately keeps you. And so I commend you to him. I stayed. I poured myself out to to keep watch on you, but I'm leaving. But the Lord is going to do his work. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to build you up. And he's going to teach you how to go and watch, keep watch for others. And so, yes, be alert and understand that we need one another, but also recognize that more than anything, we need him. And so lean on him. Lean into his word. When there's no one else around to encourage you, lean on him and lean into his word. And then lastly, he gives a final encouragement to pour yourself out in verse 33. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Again, Paul goes back to himself. He sets the example for the Ephesian elders to adopt and for us to adopt and to follow. He says, I worked hard. I worked hard. Why does he work hard, though? He says he works hard to ensure that he's not a burden to anyone else. But he also works hard to help those who can, to help the weak. He says, in all things, I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Part of living a life of encouragement is recognizing that Christ calls us not to look for what we can receive in others first, but what we can give to others first. If we're going to adopt a life of a a life of gospel encouragement, then consumeristic Christianity has to die. 
You know, we talk about, we talk, we talk about oftentimes the passage in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10 that talks about do not forsake the assembling of ourselves, the gathering, right? But what, what does it say? Why? Why should you not forsake it? Do not forsake the opportunity to be strengthened yourself? Or does it take a different posture and it says, do not forsake the opportunity to stir one another up in good works? See, the reason why you show up is not because, so not for you first. The reason you show up is for the people around you. The reason you show up is to give hope, to give encouragement, to strengthen the saints around you. And so when you lay in the bed on a Sunday morning, don't think to yourself, man, I wonder, I wonder if I'm missing something. No, that's not the first question you should ask yourself. The first question you should ask yourself is, who's missing what I've been called to bring? Who's missing the encouragement that God has assigned me to give? And then, of course, you can ask yourself, what else am I missing? Because, sure, there's things for us to receive as well. But it's, but it's not, we're not here first for us. We're here for one another. Are you tracking with that? In verse 36, it says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul. They kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. It's tough. It's tough to say goodbye, right? But Paul isn't saying goodbye because he's just trying something new. Paul isn't saying goodbye just because he just ain't feeling it. You know, I just ain't feeling it anymore. So, yeah, try another church. You know, Paul is saying goodbye because God still yet has work for him to do somewhere else. And so these brothers have benefited from the encouragement of, of Paul, the, the, the life of encouragement that, that he has poured out for them continuously. They've benefited from it. And so you can see them. You can see them weeping. You can see their pain at the fact that he will not come back once he's gone. But folks, we say sometimes when it comes to gospel goodbyes, a gospel goodbye is always saying goodbye to say hello to another assignment. It is always saying goodbye to those that we love, to those that we've established ministry with, to those that we have established burden with or, 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 or walked through burdens with and carried burdens for. It's saying goodbye to them because we're saying hello to whatever it is that God has called us to on the other side. Paul's been called to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome. And so he has to say goodbye to Ephesians, the Ephesian elders in Ephesus. And there are some times where you're going to be called to say goodbye to a neighbor or, or to a neighborhood or, or, or there's going to be missional communities where, where, where missional communities multiply. Our, our small group gatherings that we have throughout the week and the, and, the, and the families that we spend time with and we live with. There's going to be a moment, there's going to be a time where it's going to be time to say goodbye to them. But it's not going to be, just, it's not going to be because you're not feeling it. 
It's going to be time to say goodbye because there's another work to be done in our city. When we split, like, when we split into our, or multiplied into our first pair of missional communities, man, I, I still miss that missional community. My heart, my heart just aches sometimes at the fact that I'm not gathering with the same people that I was gathering with on Sunday nights. But folks, in gospel, gospel goodbyes, we say goodbye to say hello to other work that God has called us to. And so there may be other works that God has called you to, but know that whenever he calls you, he's calling you to the ministry of encouragement. He's calling you to go and strengthen somebody else. He's calling you to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so say goodbye and go. Amen.